So we're on page four in your handout. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about features of apocalyptic literature. And I'll let you know up front that this is going to have some overlap with uh, what Asher's already given to us. Uh, it won't be quite the same uh, form, but um, you'll hear some of the same kinds of things. Uh, but let's begin backing up just a bit by thinking first about genres, familiarity, and making interpretive adjustments. That's the first point uh, in your notes if you're following along there. So genres, let's, let's ask the question, what is a genre? And a genre is a style of something. It can be a style of music, or in this case with the Bible, we're talking about styles of literature. Um, some experts say that these are like families. There are family traits, right? There are similarities in a family. There are certain expectations, certain characteristics. Uh, when we're talking about a style of literature, there's certain format that takes place in any given literature. Let me ask you another question, not just what is genre, but how often do you think about genres? I suspect you'd answer that, not very much at all. Maybe a couple of times a year when I show up to a Saturday seminar at Desert Springs Church. <laughs> That's when I hear this word, genre, and otherwise I never think about it. But you actually almost certainly think about genre every day without thinking of that word. Um, so now a third question. How much does genre affect interpretation? And we'll ask in everyday life, and then we'll ask in the Bible. How often does genre affect interpretation? Let me do this. Let me describe to you some imaginary pieces of paper that I have in my hand. Uh, I'll start to describe it, and, uh, and then you tell me what it is. Uh, so let's imagine I have a piece of paper in my hand, and I'm looking at it, and it's handwritten, and it says, Dear Susie at the top, and at the bottom it says, Love Mom XOXO. What is this? It's a letter, and it's a personal letter, right? Um, because I could have another letter in my hand. Let me describe another one that I have. And it has a, um, a letterhead at the top, uh, a logo. Uh, it has two different addresses. So it looks like it's to and from. And it's signed sincerely with a signature, and then that person's name and their title. What do I have in my hand? Business letter. Uh, imagine I've got another piece of paper in my hand. I look at it and I see drawings. Uh, four drawings set apart in boxes and there are bubbles with words in each of these. What, what is this? It's a comic strip, right? Um, or, or another piece of paper. Uh, it says, get clothes from the cleaners pick up Sam from soccer, get to the Saturday seminar. This is a to-do list, right? Now, we, we know to interpret each of these things according to the rules of the thing we're looking at um, because we just experience it. We're just used to it. Um, and, and so we, we do this, whether, it, whether we're looking at a personal letter or a comic strip or a to-do list. 
um, or, or for that matter, a poem I might have in my hand. Um, you know, it, it's, it's all pretty neatly columnized, you could say. It's, it's, the text is set apart neatly, and, and it goes four lines in a space, and then four lines in a space. This is a poem, and I know how to interpret it accordingly. Uh, let's do this with the Bible. Let me read a part of the Bible, and then you tell me what we should expect next, or you could tell me what, what kind of part of the Bible this is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in, fill in the blank, anyone know? It's Corinth. It just happens to be Corinth in this case. This is a what? A letter, or we call them in the Bible, epistles. And what can I expect as I read on? Instruction, right. Right, so a biblical genre that uh, would, would categorize a letter like 2 Corinthians, we could call that discourse. Um, or, if I begin reading from the beginning of Mark, I already told you what it is, and, and you hear this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. You already know what's going to come. This is a history of Jesus. It falls under that genre or that style of literature that we call history. Um, or if I, if I read to you, let me just read this. See if you catch it. Uh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. You know where we are in the Bible, right? That's somewhere in the Psalms. Or I could just give you two very different pithy examples. Let me read you this from the Bible. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Song of Solomon. Uh, now contrast that with Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. If I treat the first of those passages in Song of Solomon like I treat the second passage I read from 1 Corinthians 15, I'm in a world of trouble, right? Uh, either it... it has to do with someone's belly being like a bowl of wheat, uh, literally, and that's weird. Um, or, Christ died for our sins, this is just symbolism. Who is Christ? What does it mean he died? What are sins? If we put symbolism to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I think we're going to be in trouble. So how about this, when we come to a passage like this? The locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, 
if you think that John saw helicopters, you're probably going to be really frustrated with this, with our time this morning. Um, we've got to get back to the first century. This is apocalyptic literature. It has its own rules. Um, and the rules that we're not that used to, as Asher said. Why is it called apocalyptic? Well, look down in your notes. Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2 is there, printed out for you. And let's read it. The revelation, Greek word apocalypsis. There it is. That's why we call this apocalyptic. The revelation or apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, some of this language leans on Daniel 2, and if we have the time, we'll look there a little later on. But this key word, apocalypsis, it doesn't mean necessarily a cataclysmic event at the end of the world. It just means revealing. It means unveiling, uncovering. It means revelation. The revelation of what? Well, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. That can mean revelation from Jesus Christ. But it can also mean, and probably does mean, the revelation about Jesus Christ. This is a revealing of Jesus. Yes, in unusual ways for us, uh, but it is revealing Jesus. It's not just revealing the end of time, though that gets covered, or even the beginning of the end of time, though that may be there as well. But ultimately, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ that stretches from before his first coming and takes us several times to his second coming. Let me talk to you just briefly, number two on that same page, about the history of apocalyptic literature. No one writes it today. It's basically extinct. Uh, but there was, there was a time when apocalyptic literature was quite popular um, among Jewish people and then among the Christians. So from about 400 B.C. to about 400 A.D., that's the heyday of apocalyptic literature. And again, no one really writes it today. I mean, you could, but it's not the same thing as sci-fi. It's not the same thing about you know, stories of the end of the, year, of the world. Uh, it's not just Flannery O'Connor, if you're familiar with her work, um, or Edgar Allan Poe. That's not apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is its own thing, and it really hasn't been around uh, much, and that's partly why we're not used to it. It's not limited to our Bibles. It's not just in Daniel and Zechariah and Revelation and those other places that Asher mentioned. There's a lot of it that was written around that time, 400 B.C. to 400 A.D., that isn't in our Bible, and rightly so. Uh, you can get an English translation of a lot of those works, a lot of those apocalyptic ancient sources, uh, and read some for yourself. It's not the Bible. I'm not saying that. But it'll help you familiarize yourself with this kind of literature and, and what it's like. Of course, more important would be to just soak in God's word 
where it's found. As I said already, like any other style of literature, apocalyptic has rules, it has format, it has features or characteristics. So thirdly, let me list for you the features or characteristics of apocalyptic literature. There are 13 of them, at least on my list. We could have more, we could list less. And basically, that definition from John Collins that Asher read at the beginning, we all laughed because it was a little hard to follow, uh, especially hearing it, not reading it. Um, but it's really good. And, and essentially, I'm going to cover that same amount of, uh, that same um, information, but just number them for you to follow along a little bit better. So number one feature of apocalyptic literature, it has a narrative element, which means that there's a plot arc going on. Um, you know, there's that, there's that setting, and then there's that climax, and then there's, there's some sort of turn that happens in a new setting. Uh, but, but often, the, the, the plot arc is given to us in snapshots. One way to, to note what's going on in the book of Revelation is just to pay attention to the times and places where John says, then I saw. He says it all over. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. What he's doing is he, is he introduces a, a new scene. Um, he's, he's letting us know this is new. This is something maybe different than before. A narrative element but it's often relayed in snapshots, not one giant narrative. Secondly, it gives us a God's eye view of things, often bouncing between heaven and earth. Asher mentioned that already, so I won't expound on that. Related to that is number three, the unseen is revealed. God peels back a little something of what's going on between God and angels and God's plan and those kinds of things. Fourth, it's always couched in crisis. Again, Asher mentioned this. Daniel is written during the exile in a time of suffering. Revelation is written when John is on Patmos, exiled for his testimony of Jesus. And it's written there to these embattled, suffering, persecuted churches by extension to all churches and all Christians that come after. Fifth, it, it frequently culminates in either heaven or hell. So that should just get our attention that a book like Revelation is talking to us about ultimate things. It's talking about eternal destinies. It's reminding us that eventually there's going to be one of two options, either heaven or hell. Sixth, it's about good versus evil and the triumph of God. And so it gives us the big picture. There's a heavy emphasis on God's sovereignty and his sovereignty now in light of the victory that's to come. Seventh, as I think Asher mentioned, at least the definition he quoted does, there's often an angelic messenger who sometimes interprets or explains. That's when it gets pretty easy, when uh, a symbol is introduced and either Jesus or an angel says, this is what it means. That's great. Take note of those. 
And eighth, there is a heavy use of imagery and symbolism. And we're going to camp out on this one for a while because it is a big one. Remember the definition, remember the introduction, rather, of Revelation, which we already read. The revelation or the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. I said that comes from Daniel 2. If you would, turn to Daniel 2, and we'll see how uh, John, as he introduces this revelation to us, he's leaning on Daniel. Daniel 2, verse 19, of course, Daniel is written mostly in Hebrew and Revelation is written in Greek, but there is a way in which we can say, yeah, that Hebrew word is equivalent to this Greek word. And so let me point out the similarities. Daniel 2, 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Remember the context here, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he doesn't get it and he wants his... um, He wants his wise men and magicians to interpret the dream for him, and they can't. And so in steps Daniel, and he is given divine understanding about about the king's dream, and Daniel's able to explain it. Now, the dream, or dreams really, plural, that happen in the book of Daniel, you know, are are symbol-laden, symbol-loaded, right? They, they They mean something. It's not a... It's not a, here's what's going to happen, and Daniel sees what is literally going to happen like he's been transported to the future. No, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dream. Like later on, there's writing on the wall, and they have to interpret that writing, and, but, but there's not going to literally be writing on the wall in the future. It's a vision that needs to be revealed. So look down at Daniel 2. Verse 29, this is now after, to you, O king, as you lay in bed, come thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation or the significance The the dream signifies something in order that the interpretation or significance may be known, known to the king. Revelation is leaning on this language from Daniel when it uses the word apocalypsis, the revealing. So we should expect that what follows is going to be largely symbolic. It's going to signify stuff. It's not just John transported to the future where he sees helicopters and doesn't know what to call them, so he calls them giant locusts. That's not how apocalyptic literature works. The the locusts signify something, and we won't even talk today about what they might signify, which I suspect might be frustrating to you. But, but, But the point is, is that we should expect in what follows from Revelation 1.1, that these are symbols, they signify, and they need to be 
unpacked. They, they need to be understood. So what follows in these symbols of revelation is wild uh, symbolism. It is mixed symbolism. Um, we talk about mixing metaphors. We sometimes accidentally mix metaphors in our speech with one another. Well, apocalyptic literature mixes metaphors or mixes symbols without blushing a bit. It loves to do that. Uh, you, you have in Ezekiel 1, angels described with four faces and eyes all around. Uh, that's mixing of metaphors. There's, there's in Revelation the slain lamb on the throne reigning. Now, we're used to that language, so we get that one. We get that one. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, and because he's risen now, he reigns, and he is on his throne. But you have to understand, it's a mixing of metaphors. The, the slain lamb is reigning on his throne. That's, that wouldn't normally go together. There's also the use of numbers, symbolically, in Revelation that's important. Uh, you have some literal numbers. There were actually seven churches. However, even there we can say, and yet they're probably representative of churches um, just like Desert Springs Church and others. So it's not limited to them, but it was directed to them, addressed to them. They were literal churches. So seven there is literal, but seven also in Revelation, can be a number of completeness. And not just in Revelation, elsewhere. You know, Daniel's 70 weeks, 70 times 7, that may be 490 years, and it may be completeness and completeness. You know, 70 weeks times 7. Or here would be an example you have several times in the book of Revelation, let's see if I can get this to work here. You have 24 elders. If you want to write down the references for later, for you to look them up, you can. That's a four, by the way. Now, who are the 24 elders? They're in heaven, that much is clear if we read through all, each of these passages. They're before the throne. They could be a different kind of angel, but they're also distinguished be, from the angels. He keeps saying 24 elders and the angels, 24 elders and the, the four living creatures, that kind of thing. So who are the 24 elders? Well, we see that they're clothed in white garments, chapter 4, verse 4. They wear golden crowns on their heads. And we see in chapter 4, verse 10, that they're seated on a throne. We're, we're seeing that they're before the Lord, worshiping him. They're, they're casting their crowns before the throne. They seem to be those who are redeemed. Why 24 elders? Is this 24 elite of the elect? I mean, these guys, they, they really knocked their Christian life out of the park, and they got front row seats in heaven. Well, I don't think so. 24, 
probably symbolic. What could it possibly be symbolic of? Well, when you get to chapter 21, verse 12, in the vision of the new heaven and new earth, you've got 12 gates, and on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel. And then you read just a couple verses later, and we read about the wall of the city, which had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. 12 plus 12 is 24. Now, that's not just Bible gimmickry. It's not Bible games. We're not playing with God's word here. This is what it meant to communicate. Um, the 144,000? Is that a literal number? It might be. Or is it possibly 12 times 12 times 1,000? It could be that. I'm just saying apocalyptic literature does that kind of thing. It does it all over the place, and it kind of expects you to follow along. And maybe you don't get what 24 elders are when you're in chapter 4 in your first read. But maybe by chapter 21, when you're hearing about 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles of the New Testament, and you're then putting them together and going back and seeing several what, one, two, three, four, five times or more that the 24 elders are before the throne? They represent the totality of God's people from Old Covenant and New Covenant. Okay? Now back to our list. Well, no, first let me do this. Anyone know what that is? It looks like carpet because we're pretty close up to it. Remember this from the 90s? These were on posters all the time. Uh, they were called the magic eye. It was this thing where if you stared at it long enough, a 3D image would emerge. Remember that? You'd have a friend who already did it, and they already saw it, and they're telling you, no, just keep looking. No, look harder. And then they would say, well, well maybe look softer. Maybe don't strain your eye. And then something would emerge. So you couldn't look merely at the surface of the thing. You had to kind of gaze into it or even relax your eye a little bit and something then would emerge. Well, that's kind of like the symbolism of uh, the book of Revelation and elsewhere. Back to our list. Repetition is part of apocalyptic literature. I just showed you that with 24 elders five different times in the book of Revelation. Um, you'll, you'll see the same people, the same creatures, the same things keep popping up. Ten, there's elasticity, which really goes back to that magic eye thing and the strategy of relaxing your gaze just a bit, and maybe then you see it. Or the way Asher put it is, don't obsess about every small detail. Sometimes you're just supposed to, you know, capture the big picture. Number 11, very important, is Old Testament allusions, not quotations. I think the Old Testament isn't quoted even one time in the book of Revelation. But there are 500. 
500 allusions to the Old Testament. 500. Isn't that crazy? It's the most Old Testament-filled book of the New Testament. And that has massive interpretive value. Sometimes when we don't know what this symbol could represent, we can go rooting around in the Old Testament allusions, and we might get our answer there. We did that with Daniel 2 in what apocalypsis might mean. 12 is recapitulation, which is a word I never use unless I'm giving this talk. Recapitulation just means there are cycles, that the storytelling isn't a, non, isn't a linear timeline necessarily. It's nonlinear sometimes, or at least in parts. And lastly, it is about the consummation of all things, the end of time. It is, but it's for the now. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that Revelation was written in the first century, first and foremost, for first century Christians. It wasn't written for the last generation who will live on planet Earth before Jesus comes back. It was actually written with first century people in mind and every generation of Christians that would come after them, including those who happen to be the last generation before Jesus comes back. Okay? So let me now try to show you some structure in the book of Revelation. Number four in your outline. Structure of Revelation. Let me start with a premise that apocalyptic literature is often written in snapshots, not in a straight timeline. So, here's a question. What if Revelation wasn't written in a straight timeline? Now, when I was a kid, my mom had framed a chart of what was going to happen. And it had the bowls, and it had the vials, the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the things that are going to get poured out, the trumpets. It was all in this order. And you could see it was, it was an it artistic timeline. Well, that may not have been the best way to look at the book of Revelation. And let me say up front that I'm really not talking about any one view of end times theology. If you came here today thinking, oh, good. They're going to tell me what to believe about the order of events at the end of time and whether I should be pre-trib, pre-mill, mid-trib, pre-wrath rapture, post-mill, preterist, amill. We're not going to talk about any of that. We're trying to just understand the book of Revelation. There is a time to put our pieces together and to do theology. We're not doing that today. We're just trying to understand the book of Revelation and how it works. And really, if you think of it this way, that's one step towards eventually getting to a theology. Uh, and if you don't get this step right, because it's first, you probably could get a little screwy on the theology end of things. But we're not there today. We're not talking about that. So don't try to discern what I really think or something like that. <laughs> Let me just show you this. Turn to Revelation 7. Notice in your notes... I want to show you that there are seven consummations in the book of Revelation. Not one. Not one. 
So someone read for us Revelation 7, verses 16 to 17. Someone with a decently loud voice. Revelation 7, verse 16 and 17. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is a kind of end, right? These are people before the throne of God, and God is now um, the source of their joy. He wipes every tear from their eye. Some of this language is used in Revelation 21 and 22 about the new heaven and the new earth. No more tears. All right, so here's a consummation of sorts. Now we could go to chapter 11, and here I won't read it, I just want you to gaze in your Bibles. You, you already have it written down in your notes, so you don't need to take notes on this, but I do want you to see it in your Bibles. In chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, it's called the seventh trumpet in my Bible's heading. And it may, some would say, well, this is one step along the way at the end of time. Or... It may be the end of time. Because in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, the 24 elders are in the heavenly temple. Again, this is the language that is used at the end of Revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. It is a heavenly temple. And the 24 elders are there. And God's wrath has been poured out. Judgment has been made on the nations, it says. You go to chapter 14, look there. Again, we won't read it, but I want you to see it in your Bible. In chapter 14, you have Jesus' harvest. Jesus has a, a sickle, and he is going to go through the land, and he's going, to, he's going to reap what is his. Some to blessing and to heaven, and, and others to judgment. And you can say, well, maybe this is one step along the way. Yeah, maybe, but, but this seems like the final day stuff. This is the consummation. This is that great harvest. Or you go to chapter 16. Go there. You see judgment on Babylon and the nations. Who's Babylon? Well, Babylon is the unbelieving world. Again, it's not literal Babylon. It didn't exist in first century AD, but it's like that old Babylon, and it's wicked, and so God just describes the nations, plural, as Babylon, and here, Babylon is destroyed. It is destroyed. That's shown in chapter 16. It's explained in chapter 17. Then you go to chapter 19, and here we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. We also have right alongside it, right after it, the white horse judgment. This is where Jesus is on a white horse and a sharp sword's coming out of his mouth and he's slaying his enemies. And then you have in chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, here's the great white throne judgment. And of course, there's at the end, that biggest consummation of them all, the, the long portrait of a new heaven and a new earth. 
I would suggest to you that there are probably about seven different consummations in the book of Revelation, which means then that this isn't a straight line. It's more like um, a spiral staircase. It keeps going over the same material. It doesn't always start in the same place, but it keeps getting to the end. It keeps getting to the end. It keeps getting to the end. And then it takes two whole chapters to describe the beauty and glory of the end for believers. Or we could talk about groupings of sevens. This is fascinating. You got seven churches, chapters one through three. Then you have seven seals, chapters four through seven. Then you have seven trumpets. Now those are all explicitly enumerated for us in the book of Revelation, right? They're called the seven churches, and then these are called the seven seals, and then these are called the seven trumpets. There are some sevens in the book of Revelation which aren't enumerated for us, but probably are there. Like this next section, chapters 12 to 14, there are seven snapshots of relevant characters in this battle royale between heaven and earth. There's the woman, the dragon, the beast, then there's a second beast or a false prophet, 144,000. Then there are angels or messengers. And then there's the harvester, capital H, Jesus. Seven snapshots of relevant characters. Now, I'm not as certain we should see that as a grouping of seven as some other parts where it says these are seven uh, seals. But I'm pretty sure, especially when you have some explicit sevens, and then in the gaps of those explicit sevens, well, you just count them up, and it keeps getting to seven. Chapters 15 to 16, you got seven angels with seven bowls, which are plagues. Then chapter 17 to 19, here's another section where it's not explicitly enumerated, but we have seven words of judgment regarding Babylon. You have the explanation of Babylon and the beast, chapter 17, verses 7 to 18. You have the celebration of Babylon's judgment, chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. And you have a brief word of warning to the saints, don't, don't put your lot with Babylon. And then there's judgment on the kings of the world, then there's judgment on the merchants of the world. And then there's judgment on the sailors, the ones who are getting that merchandise to new places. And then there's a final word of judgment on Babylon. Seven messages regarding the judgment of Babylon. And then well, you have the new heaven and new earth. We've talked about that already at the end of the book of Revelation. And there's no grouping of seven necessarily, but the... The whole thing is revealed, here's chapter 21, verse 9, by one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of seven plagues. I think we're supposed to keep track of this stuff. So Revelation isn't a linear timeline. It's telling the same story from different angles in snapshots. Now let's just briefly think about implications, and then I'll take some questions.
So what are some implications? Uh, one would be that God has given to us this book in a style of literature that's foreign to us, but not useless to us. Okay? You might ask, why did God choose to give us this wild literature? Why did he choose to reveal the truths that could be communicated to us in a different way? Why did he choose to communicate it to us this way? Well, we could say our God is a God of variety. Our God is a God of spectacular diversity. We could say also that our God is a God who reveals himself in time and to specific people first and foremost. That's how the Bible works. Paul wrote to the Philippians, and he had things in common that he talked to them about. Well, Revelation is a book written in the first century, and it bears all the earmarks of the first century, like persecution and like this style of literature, apocalyptic. The first readers, don't forget, weren't uh, unused to this kind of literature. And as Asher pointed out, it really does capture the imagination. It gets us outside of the here and now. As Asher said, it's emotive, right? And by the way, most postmodern non-Christians don't have as much trouble with it as some older Christians who, you know, older Christians can sometimes come to a passage in Revelation, and they're just trying to figure out where it fits in the timeline, and they're not dazzled by it. Uh, you know, we're, a, we're a people today, postmoderns especially, who don't mind a movie that jumps all over the place. You, you have fun sometimes wondering, is this now? Is this now or was it back then? When is it? Is this the future? We kind of like movies like that, and Revelation is a book like that. Find encouragement and comfort, then, in its overall message. Not necessarily in an eschatological scheme of events. There's a time for that. I'm not saying don't do theology or don't read that part of a systematic theology. I'm just saying what we need to hear is that in the midst of trouble, Jesus is on his throne. He is sovereign. Yeah, Satan is at work. Yeah, there's trouble in this time. But it doesn't threaten Jesus' plan one bit. And he is coming back. And it may be soon. And so we can have great confidence to persevere with joy to the end, no matter what seems to be going on around us. It may look chaotic. But behind the scenes, Jesus is reigning and his angels are communicating and, and John wrote it all down for us. Any questions? Just a couple minutes, then we'll take a longer break. What was that picture you had? It's, oh, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that picture was. I didn't stare long enough to know. <laughs> I just found one on the web and threw it up there.
Yeah, certainly. It's certainly possible that Babylon, um, in John's mind, was Rome. Um, there's, the, there's the balance we need to have um, in seeing books of the Bible as in a historical context while also being useful for every age to come, right? Um, so am I wrong if I... If John intended Babylon to mean Rome, and first century Christians knew that, am I wrong to think of Babylon today as the nations? I would say no, I'm not wrong in that, and I think that there's biblical reason for that, right? So when Babylon is judged at the end, uh, it's the nations, plural. Uh, it's the whole system of ungodly materialism, and abuse that's going down and so i don't need to say yeah god got rome you know they're not the rome they used to be i can say god will take care of all injustices in the future and and i should guard my heart from materialism and that kind of thing so we need to have relevance now i, I think i think there are subtle clues in the text sometimes that historicize it and contextualize it and make us think of first century guys are going to be thinking that's Rome and yet there are hints there that uh, won't let us stay just in the first century and apply it just to someone uh, something like Rome one more